When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Starfleet Leadership Academy, a leadership development podcast told through the lens of Star Trek. And now here's your host, Jeff Aiken. Welcome everyone. Thanks for joining me today. In this episode, Picard shows the value of just laughing with your team, while Dr. Pulaski demonstrates what it looks like to stand up for them. We're also going to explore a strategy for building trust with your teams that you can apply right away. All of this in the 18th episode of the second season of The Next Generation, Up the Long Ladder. Some have called this the most boring opening in all of Star Trek. Boring! Personally, though, I love it. There are two things going on here. Worf isn't feeling well. And Picard is meeting with Riker about a weird distress signal that was received. It's using some ancient, almost unknown code. All they know is where it is and that the code came from Earth. Apparently from the European hegemony. Hegemony. Hegemony? Hegemony. Hegemony. What I love about this is there are so many moments in Star Trek where they're they're just they're just headed out after a mysterious distress call. We're departing from Starbase 73 to investigate the source of a mysterious distress signal. This scene shows what goes on before they head out to help. My issue with it though is why why are the captain and the first officer the ones doing the work? Like don't they have science and communications experts that should be doing this? Well, I mean, I guess they probably do, but they don't have featured spots in the opening credits, so so we get these two doing it. But hey, here here's a hot take. Maybe maybe it should be the science experts, the communications experts and other crew that are featured in the credits. I mean, they really are the stars of the operation. I mean, I know I know this is TV, but but, but most of you, most of you aren't on TV. So so hear me out. Hear me out. So does your organization have opening credits of some kind? You know, like it's a it's a way of showing interested people who is responsible for what and whose work should be recognized. Yeah? I think for most organizations, this is the about page on their website. You know, there's a, a row or a grid of pictures with titles, maybe short bios under them. And these are, I guess these are usually like your C-levels and, and, and other executive leaders. Now, while I'm sure that's important from a shareholder perspective or for media contacts, like, does it really reflect who is doing the work? Who is, who is really responsible for the perception of the organization? No, of course not. It's the frontline workers, the, the, the subject matter experts, and the operational leadership that are all responsible for that. You can have a CEO with a perfectly photoshopped headshot. Good headshots matter, especially if you're applying for jobs now and trying to look the part. Or if you're just trying to impress somebody on the grams. And bio on the about page that it says all kinds of great things about your product, your commitment to customer service, but, but, 
But if the frontline staff don't buy into all of that, they don't follow the, the processes, they don't implement the quality controls that the CEO talks about, well, then the company's going to produce a second-rate product, and, and that's going to directly impact the reputation of the company and people's perception of it. Now, I doubt this tangent is going to change how companies position their key players, you know, their, their stars, but it's, but it's something to consider and something to think about. As we've talked about before on this podcast, as a leader, you should always be actively searching for opportunities to bring attention to the great work your teams are doing. And when you do that, be specific in describing the work. Use, use their names and talk them up like they're the ones that have the starring credit on the show's open. And just before we cut to the opening credits, Data calls a medical emergency. Worf has collapsed to the deck. Dr. Pulaski is examining him and is handling this with extreme grace. Klingons do not faint. He's wildly insulted. He's embarrassed. Turns out he's got a childhood illness. Rapak Picard calls down to check in on him. And Pulaski covers and makes up a story on the fly about Worf fasting. It's a super cool move by the doctor here. Data meets with Picard, and they go over the information he's found on the distress call. He's found the cargo manifest of the ship that they believe sent it. They believe it's a group of colonists that left Earth in the early 22nd century. Data thinks they're a group of utopians that left to, to return to a simpler lifestyle. After his treatment is done, Worf visits Pulaski in her office. He's even more impressed with Pulaski than even I am. He's brought a tea service to thank her. No one has ever performed the Klingon tea ceremony for me. She shows tremendous respect to his culture and, and, and knows the ceremony well. Worf tells her the tea is deadly to humans, but she, but, but she knows what a big deal this is. So she takes an antidote, drinks the tea anyway. What's going on here? Tea ceremony. Oh, I guess it's an old ritual or something. That they are in love again. What happens next? It's uh, well, well, it's really up to your imagination. But but I think she gives us a little hint here. Now, quote me a little of that poetry. They arrive at the planet the distress signal was coming from. The sun is spewing violent flares, and the colony is in extreme danger. Riker heads down to the surface to coordinate evacuation. He calls up, saying things are more complicated than expected, but Picard, Picard refuses to listen. I'm having a little debate with the colony's leader, it seems... There's no time, number one. Initiate the transport. But, sir... Whatever the problem, we'll handle it up here. Aye, aye, sir. We're on our way. All of us. Well, and then the fun starts. O'Brien beams them in, and they're a very agrarian group, and everything comes up. The straw... The pigs, the chickens, everything. Captain, you better get somebody down here. Right away. Picard is shocked and angry and, and lays right into Riker. I mean, seriously? Seriously? I mean, the dude tried to warn you, Captain. Come on. And then the show, the episode, takes a sharp and immediate turn into <sighs> abject racism. Leaning into really, really hurtful stereotypes. Oh, Brian, is it? I should have known to be a good Irishman who was running this ship. I mean, he's even red-faced and is carrying a flask when he says this to O'Brien. 
much of the episode moving forward from here just just plays on this and yeah it's just it's just not cool at all and apparently these are the utopians data thought were out there they're called the bringloidy and that's a play on an irish word that means dream the leader danilo odell seems interested in nothing more than marrying off his daughter brenna and she seems to be the one running the show People listen to her, and she, <laughs> almost aggressively, advocates for the Bringloidy. You may have all the time in the world, but I've dozens of frightened and hungry children and women to look after. And Picard has a, has a good moment of wisdom here. Sometimes, you just have to bow to the absurd. In context, it's pretty insulting to the already insulting portrayal of the colonists, but but there are some lessons to pull out of this statement and we'll dive into those. We'll dive into those later on. Picard learns there's a second colony. It's just uh, just a half light year further on in the cargo manifest that data found earlier. There was a lot of technology and none of it was present with the Bringloidy. So Picard assumes that this second colony must be the one who took that after a short and uh, uncomfortable scene, Brenna and Riker, um, getting to know each other. They arrive at the second colony, Mariposa. The prime minister, Wilson Granger, reaches out. Data notes that the captain of the colony ship was Walter Granger. He asks if he's a descendant, and Wilson cryptically responds, Not quite a descendant. He is eager to connect with Earth, though, and invites them to the surface. Riker, Worf, and Pulaski head down, but not before Troy warns them that he's hiding something. She, she urges caution. As they walk through the facility, they notice everybody looks really similar. Triplets? They arrive at the Prime Minister's office, and Pulaski calls him, calls him right out. Tell me, is your entire population made up of clones, Prime Minister? And he doesn't even try to hide it. He just admits that they're clones. And then he asks for help. We are, we are 29 minutes into this episode, and finally we have something interesting. It turns out that most of the original colonists died upon landing due to a hull breach. And that just left five people, three men and two women, that were all scientists. Deciding that there just weren't enough people to, to build a, a viable gene pool, they figured out how to clone themselves. And Pulaski sees their issue. It's, uh, it's really just the multiplicity problem. We made a copy from two. And you know how sometimes you make a copy of a copy, it's not quite as sharp as, well, the original. Well, that's kind of what happened. The Mariposans want fresh DNA, tissue samples, specifically of members of the crew. And Riker freaks out. He wants nothing to do with this. The Mariposans, though, don't, don't see this as a big deal. It's kind of a no harm, no foul kind of thing. Whether the crew gives the samples or not, not nothing's going to change for them, but the colonists believe that they'll be saved, at least refreshed. But Pulaski points out that this would, would just delay the inevitable, and in a few generations, they'd be right back in the exact same position. But not one to shy away from a problem. She asks to return to the planet. She wants to study the issue further. The Prime Minister and Picard both agree to let her go. Picard also agrees with Riker, and he refuses the request for tissue samples. He does agree, though, to send another crew down to, to help with equipment repairs around the colony. Now, 
This might come as a surprise to some of you, but I am not gifted with prescience, <laughs> and I doubt any of you are either. But I am pretty sure I can see exactly where this is headed. Ah, this episode is just rife with subtlety. So, so Pulaski is wrapping up her research, and the repair crews are just about finished. So she and Riker check in with the Prime Minister, who has them stunned and kidnaps them. Jordy comes in looking for him, and the Prime Minister is all, I'm afraid I haven't seen him. And then we get a scene from a horror movie, as they put these big old needles right into their stomachs. Ugh. Back on the Enterprise, Jordy finds Riker and Pulaski. Says he couldn't find them, and that no one seemed to know where they were, but Jordy, Jordy knew. He could tell they were hiding something. Pulaski takes a scan and can see some tissue was taken from her and Riker, specifically from the stomach lining, which apparently is uh, the most ideal tissue for cloning purposes. Look, I know we have a few people that work in the sciences that are regular listeners. Can, can any of you verify that? <laughs> I found it to be a very interesting point. And, and if it's not true or it's something that we don't know yet, like what was the point of even saying that? Ah, Star Trek. And do you remember back when I said Pulaski never shies away from trying to solve a problem? Same applies here. She and Riker immediately beam into the cloning labs and destroy the clones and the tissue samples. I will not be undermined by creatures bred in some laboratory. This forces a standoff between them and the Prime Minister. He says they're desperate and he defends their actions. This leads to Riker and Pulaski meeting with Picard and Troy. Troy tries to help them find some common ground. But really, we do have much in common. They're human beings fighting for survival. Would we do any less? Pulaski reiterates that even with new DNA, it's just delaying the inevitable. She and Picard, though, they land on a possible solution. Bring them together with the Bringloidi. They, the Bringloidi, need a place to live. And the Mariposans need, well, they need breeding stock. It's a match made in heaven. They all meet together, and they aren't interested. They insult each other and argue, but Picard won't tolerate it. I will not allow posturing and bigotry to destroy this meeting. Now please, sit down. They walk through their issues, and after a difficult negotiation, they finally agree. The Bringloidi will move to Mariposa, and the cultures will come together. With hard work, understanding, and patience, eh, both groups' problems will be solved. Send in the clones. When this episode came up from computer in the last episode, I said I didn't remember anything about it. And after watching it for this podcast episode, I hope I can forget about it again. Ronald D. Moore, the genius behind Battlestar Galactica and great Star Trek episodes like Family, The Pegasus, Inter Arma Enem Silent Legus, I'm sure I said that wrong, and Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite, had some pretty strong feelings on this episode. He's on the record calling it embarrassing and terrible beyond terrible. And hey, who am I to argue with Ronald D. Moore, right? I think, though, there were two really great episodes buried in this heaping dumpster fire. The relationship between Worf and Pulaski, like, like diving into her respect for Klingon culture and stuff, and then, and then the concept of a colony made completely of clones? Oh, it'd be great. 
But the Wharf Pulaski story was over before the end of the first act, and we didn't even get to the concept of the clones till well after the halfway point of the show. But I really think there's a lot in both of those ideas to dive into. We were teased with some cool concepts with the clones, you know, infusions of new DNA, replicative failing, and a, and a total aversion to biological reproduction. There are some really deep philosophical and ethical examinations to be had on those subjects, but instead, instead we got Irish stereotypes trying to, trying to find the right booze from the replicator. The writer, Melissa Snodgrass, said this was supposed to be a commentary on immigration. Yeah, I think, uh, I think you kind of missed the mark on that one here. There was even this whole weird scene where, where Riker was going to help Brenna wash her feet. Which, not surprisingly, is a pretty childish euphemism that just gave him an excuse to put her in a half sweater and, and have Riker get some smoochy smoochy on screen. It's, it's no secret that TNG was still you know, finding its footing in the second season. And while there are some standout episodes like Q Who and, of course, The Measure of a Man, almost the whole rest of the season is pretty rough. And if this, if this one isn't the worst, it is... It is certainly one of them. And in, in, in fact, I'm going to go so far. I'm going to say it. This is, this is probably one of the worst episodes in all of Star Trek. Worst episode ever. Command codes verified. But being one of the worst episodes of Star Trek doesn't mean there's nothing to learn from it. We have some great lessons to dive into on this one. The Starfleet Leadership Academy is supported by listeners just like you. Click the link in the show notes to support the ongoing production of this podcast. First, let's talk about just how great Pulaski is. She shines in her role as a medical professional and a scientist through this whole episode. But, but in her interactions with Worf, she really shines as a leader, too. First, she, she knows Worf, and she both honors and celebrates his culture. When she's initially diagnosing him, he pushes back. She doesn't argue with him. She doesn't try to prove her point. She understands that arguing or pushing back will accomplish nothing more than just escalating a conflict. So she just acknowledges and rolls with it. As a leader, you can very easily do the same. As we've talked about before, it's, it's just not important to argue or prove that you're right. If the person you're talking to passionately feels a certain way or believes a thing, there isn't really anything you can say to change their mind. So don't argue, just acknowledge and roll through it. Here we go. Let's, let's give you an example. Yeah, it wasn't a mistake. That's just the way the program works. No, it doesn't. I was on the team that rolled this out and it's designed to. Nope. All that's going to do is put them in a defensive mode. And best case, all you're going to do is argue about it. So, so try something like this instead. It wasn't a mistake. That's just the way the program works. Okay, well, we need to update the data so the PO process is on time. Do you have any ideas on, on how we can go about doing that? You see, acknowledge it. Don't necessarily agree with them, but just acknowledge and roll through. Sometimes you have to roll the hard six. In this case, you move past their defense mechanism and move towards a solution. <laughs> it's beautiful. Second, when Picard calls down to check on Worf, she covers for him. It would have been really easy for her to have just told them that Worf basically had the measles, but she understood that that would be humiliating to him. 
Instead, she told a story that acknowledged he wasn't well and that he was on the mend. That protected him and protected his honor. Now look, we're, we're just people, right? And honestly, that might be news to, to some of us, but, but we're just people. And so are the people we work with. Now, you know an incredible thing about people? Yeah, we, we find ourselves in embarrassing situations sometimes. And, and sometimes, oh, the worst of the times, people at work or our supervisors find out about or know about those times. As a leader, really, just as a person, you have a choice. You can share that embarrassing thing, maybe have a laugh, or you can respect their privacy and their dignity and just keep it to yourself. If you choose to have a laugh about it, you're doing so at their expense and at the expense of your trust. Hope that was a great laugh. And especially as a leader or a manager, you need to protect the private information your staff and your teams share with you. If you don't, your relationship will suffer. And here's the other big thing, the really big thing. It'll damage the relationship you have with the people you share the situation with. In my experience, no joke, no laugh is worth that. So here's my big dose of wisdom for you here. If someone tells you something about someone else, I can all but guarantee they're telling someone else about you. Think on that one for a little while. Switching to Picard, he has a moment of deep insight on this one. Sometimes you just have to bow to the absurd. In our lives, a lot of wild and kind of hilarious stuff happens. And sometimes the hilarious stuff is, well, it's actually, it's actually pretty negative. But, but it can be kind of funny or absurd. In this episode, Picard walks in on an agricultural group of manual laborers surrounded by barnyard animals and stray straw that are trying to figure out why a fire suppression system went off. I mean, it's a mess. It's wild and chaotic. But Picard stops and finds humor in the moment. He takes what could have been a frustrating and anxiety-inducing situation and creates a moment that allows him and everyone around him to to shrug it off and and move on. It makes me think of a situation a client of mine had. They worked for a good-sized regional nonprofit. They spent a lot of their time looking for funding streams and grant opportunities. And and they were really good at it. Well, that's that's not fair. I mean, they still work there and uh, at least at the time of this recording and so so they 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 are good at it. If you've ever worked with grants before, applied for them or actually executed them, you know the paperwork and the bureaucracy that's built into them. Then add the layers that exist in many nonprofits, and you have the setup to be a very disappointing story. A disappointing story that, that can really make you laugh. So here's what happened. They get approval from their board to apply for a grant. I think it was worth uh, $50,000. One million dollars. <clears throat> a million dollars isn't exactly a lot of money these days. Okay, then. We hold the world ransom for $100 billion. They work super hard through the application, the writing process, and eventually, when they're done, they're awarded the grant. Hooray, right? Well, not in this case. 
They took the award to the board for them to formally accept it. Remember now, they, they, they said, they're the ones that said it was okay to go and get this grant, right? Well, now that they have access to the funds, they had all kinds of other ideas on how to spend it. And none of them were for what the grant writers said they'd be spending it on. Apparently, this was, was pretty common, something they ran into a lot. In fact, my clients said they, they halfway expected this to happen, but they sure hoped it wouldn't. I mean, they'd spent a long time on this. They even spent some of their political capital with their network to make this happen. And then, a moment of hope. The board called them back and said that they were going to accept the grant if they could redirect like 20000 of it. Dejected, my client told them they couldn't do that and put the whole award at risk. So the board refused it. This was heartbreaking for them. It was sad. And it was honestly, it was at least just at least a little bit insulting. Now, I feel like they would be really justified if they'd gotten really upset. I mean, they could have called board members up, given them a piece of their mind. You know, they, 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 they could have even threatened to quit. They, they could. They could even write a very sternly worded letter. <laughs> but none of those things would have made a difference at all. They would have just driven them further down a path of disappointment, and maybe even anger. Instead, <laughs> instead, they just laughed. <laughs> of course we blew this opportunity, they said to themselves. And immediately, or just about immediately, they were, they were okay with it. And here's where the power of that laughter really comes to light. Because they were okay with what happened, and they weren't disappointed or angry, they were in a clear state to address the problem. They were able to meet with individual board members, showing them objective data about the funding opportunities their inconsistency had cost them. Now, now I wish I knew if things changed or got better for that organization or not, but, but this is actually happening right now. Like this is a real time thing. I actually just spoke with this person the other day about this exact situation and the discussions they're still having. But the point is laughing at the situation you can't do anything else about, or as Picard says, bowing to the absurd can allow you to focus on the actual problem and look for a solution. Hey, look at that. Two very different things, you know, not arguing a point and, and, and then laughing at negative situations. And they both kind of get you to the same place, a place where you can actively work on solving the problem. Let's see if this third lesson takes us there too. Jean-Luc Picard is a paragon of leadership. In fact, I'm pretty sure his picture is next to the word in more than one online dictionary, but, but it took him some time to get there. The Picard we see in seasons one and two is a very different leader than what we know from later seasons. And in this episode, eh, he shows that he really still has some developing to do. Early on, when Riker is in the Bringloidy colony, he calls up and tells Picard he's having a debate and he needs Picard to know about it. Let me, let me say that last part again in a little bit of a different way because it really is the key part here. Riker calls up to Picard and asks for help. So, of course, Picard, being a great leader and all, he pauses, asks Riker what's going on, and checks in to see how he can help. <laughs> no, wait, sorry. No, that's, that's actually not what happens at all. You see, he basically tells him to can it and then just beam everybody up. We know how the rest of the story goes from there, right? Pandemonium ensues, and the poor PAs on set have to bring in and clean up all that straw and clean up after the animals. <laughs> Gross. So let's break down just exactly what happened here. William Riker, the second in command of the ship, Picard's number one, 
reports that things aren't going great. Now remember, Picard and Riker have developed a trusting, supportive relationship at this point, and Riker is leaning on that relationship, on that trust, as he asks for help. And then Picard Picard blows him off, literally cuts him off mid-sentence and gives him a direct order, which I'm sure does a lot to really build that trusting relationship, right? And after that, and, and honestly, this is the part that really gets me. After that, when O'Brien calls for assistance, he heads to the transporter room and he gets angry. He's upset that the room is a mess and he had an opportunity to do something about it. Let me, let me put this a little differently. This is like your toddler trying to tell you they need to use the toilet, you not listening to them and actually telling them just to keep playing. And then they have an accident in their pants and you get mad at them. Like, where's the logic in that? All the mischief and absurdity in this episode could have been handled in a much better way if Picard had taken two minutes and just listened to Riker. After seeing the mess in the transporter room, his solution was to beam them all to Cargo Base 7. And he could have just set that up from the go if he had just listened. So this time, let's break down what should have happened. Riker says he's having a debate. Picard asks what he can do. Riker explains the situation, and then they have a short back and forth that results in the colony being transported directly into the cargo hold. Counselor Troy and Dr. Pulaski are waiting for them in there so they can be sure they're healthy and they can help them acclimate to a dramatically different level of technology and a very different culture. From there, they find out about the Mariposans, and at this point, we're maybe like eight, nine minutes into the episode, so now, now we can spend more time with Pulaski and Worf. We can explore the ethical and philosophical dilemmas the clones present, but, but that didn't happen. So think about situations in your workplace, or, or even just in your life as a whole, where you should have listened before moving on to the next step. Then, think about what you can do to ensure You give people the time and the space needed to give you all the important and relevant information. And here's what I want you to do after you've thought on this. I want you to go to Facebook. I want you to find and join the SFLA podcast group and share your strategy. You can find that by searching for the Starfleet Leadership Academy or SFLA podcast. This group is a growing community of leaders, managers, and Star Trek fans that share ideas, help each other grow and develop. I look forward to seeing you there and hearing about your strategy. What memories do you have of this episode? Let me know. We're on Twitter at SFLA Podcast, and you can follow me on all the social media at Jeff T. Aiken. Jeff, T as in tea ceremony. A-K-I-N. And visit our updated website, jeffaken.com. In the bottom right corner, there's a microphone icon. Click that and you can leave me a voicemail. In fact, if you leave me a voicemail, I just might include it on a future episode of the Starfleet Leadership Academy. Okay, computer, what are we going to watch next time? Working. We're going back to the Bajoran Wormhole and Deep Space Nine. Season 5, Episode 6, the celebration of the 30th anniversary of Star Trek, its trials and tribulations. Cadets, if you have not seen this episode before, watch it right now. 
It was nominated for a Hugo Award, even an Emmy. And in my opinion, this is one of the most enjoyable episodes in all of Star Trek. I can't wait to watch it and share the leadership lessons it has with all of you. But until then, ex astra scientia. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that the no, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels on this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In. The Spanish Remixes, out now on Electric Has Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music.